podcast. I'm Charlie Stone. I'm Jackson Grubb. I'm Shane Munton. Today we're having a debate. We have with us Dr. Stephen Hancock, who is the English Department Chair at BYU-Hawaii, and Dr. Troy Smith, who is a professor of political science and a scholar of federalism. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thanks so, for having us. Hey. Today we're going to be talking about postmodernism, which if any of you have taken a philosophy class and it talks about just questioning your entire existence, that's a little bit about what it is. Not entirely, which is why we have these two gentlemen with us today. They're going to tell us a lot more about it. Yeah, so we're going to go through defining postmodernism and its function in society, as well as its merits and uh, demerits or disadvantages. Yeah, so to begin, we want you to state your name, your favorite place to eat in the Laie Shopping Center, why you're interested in postmodernism, and then what your definition is of postmodernism. Well, okay, so I'm Steve Hancock. I I work in the English department. I'm the the chair, I guess, of the English department, which means people sit on me. And (laughs) I... um, Where do I like to eat? I'm going to say a shopping center in La Ie. So it is a La Ie, a La Ie shopping center. Is uh, I like I like uh, Guadalajara Grill, which is now in in uh, in the Hukilao Marketplace. Because I don't I don't really I mean I don't have anywhere that's especially wonderful that I like in in La, the La Ie shopping center. So <laughs> yeah, your choices are limited. They're limited. Yeah. Subway or Taco Bell, right? <laughs> I'm Troy Smith. I'm a professor of political science at BYU-Hawaii. I'm also a fellow at the Center for the Study of Federalism and the editor of the online encyclopedia of federalism. And uh, my favorite place to eat in the Laie Shopping Center is the uh, Poke Bowl from Foodland. Mm. Oh, that's a good one, too. That is a good one. Wait, which one specifically? I like the show you best. Solid one. Yeah, I have a confession. I've never eaten poke. Oh, oh, you gotta go. Do you like fish? Yeah, I don't. I don't mind fish. I don't even mind raw fish. But I, I was under the impression that it all had limu in it, and I just don't <laughs> like seaweed. Oh. But somebody told me no, and that there's some. I'm gonna start with some spicy. That's that's my favorite poke that doesn't have limu. You know, that's I really there uh, in Sherwood, where I'm from, in Oregon, they had this uh, poke place. They opened up, and we're like, "Oh, we gotta go!" And then we went, and it was just—it's not the same. Like mm. Foodland, for some reason, is like the gold standard of poke. It really it's is. Actually uh, really good. Well, I've heard, I've, <laughs> I've heard that we got a debate here. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that uh, <laughs> actually that Tamura's. Tamura's. I've always oh, heard yeah. is the gold Tamura's standard. Tamura's right. is have that one. Oh. Um, you can tell because better poke when. The, the worse the floor looks, like the older the floor is, the better the poke, I think. Probably true. I'm just not sure that spicy poke is actually poke. Because it is, well, the, actually, you know, it's anything. I, mean, I like it, but you know, if you want to get the real poke, you but like, gotta go show is you. It here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Is like poke, it's not poke if it's not cubed. Because poke means like uh, in Hawaiian, poke is cubed anything if you cut it into cubes it's poke so you could cut i don't know tomatoes into cubes and they're poke oh yeah really i've heard that yeah so to lomi lomi salmon it's really poke if it yeah because it's in cubes anything that's in cubes interesting huh but but you know current usage (laughs) see this leads us into the idea that (laughs) language is fluid and uh it's really hard because you know is it really poke you know, it depends on if you're sitting in my Hawaiian class or if you're talking about 
you know what's really I don't know what really poke is. And if know. you read it, it just looks like the word poke. Yeah. So. Yeah. In fact, I was in an airport one time and they were talking about poke bowls what and they poke? they were talking about strange <laughs> foods that you can eat in different ballparks across the nation and they talked about poke bowls. And I was oh. like, <laughs> you're like, no. I was like, dude, if you're it's gonna like, do, oh, if on. you're going to do a segment on this, find out how to pronounce it. Oh. I'm I'm all about learning to pronounce things. But um oh but the first question was what is postmodernism and yes. and that that was the first thing that I wanted to kind of make sure that we're on the same page about and I kind of wrote about this in some of the emails that we've had that I mean there's postmodernism and there's poststructuralism deconstruction and sort of critique of discourse and um and what we aren't talking about is sort of like postmodern culture in the sense of I don't really want to talk about pastiche. And I don't want to talk about there's a there's a really lovely artist. I don't know. Some people think she's lovely. I think it's kind of gross. But anyway, um, that she'll swallow paint and then she throws up the paint uh, to create art because she wants to question the intentionality of art. That when she's throwing up, she's no longer intending to create any particular thing because she loses control of her muscular, uh, you know. Can, she she has no muscular control. It's just the the natural like okay. So she's like, what I throw up is the art that I'm creating, and it's like, well, is art the intended creation of, or is it just what happens? And once you create something, is it? Do we care what you intended anymore? And so she wanted to question all those things, and I mean, bring all sorts of other tangential issues like bulimia and the purposes of what our body is does our body have a purpose or could it be converted from an, could your stomach go from being an eating machine to being a puking machine that creates art uh, i don't know you know like um do, do we have to use things for what they're used for can we use them for you know other things entirely and uh, are things actually something so that leads into it but i don't want to talk about like whether that's good art because that's neither here nor there I don't think. But it leads us into some of the questions of post-structuralism, which I think are much more salient to what we want to talk about, which are, you know, um, to what extent is language uh, able to convey truth? And to what extent uh, is language, uh, to what extent is understanding possible? And I, I don't, I don't say that understanding isn't possible. Think, what is that extent? What does it mean? And I think this is the important thing about, say, post-structuralism, which the structuralists talked about how meaning happened, and then the post-structuralists talked about how meaning failed to happen. Where are the holes? Um, and I always tell my students, you know, the big, for me, as to the extent that I'm post-structuralist, I don't think that I am a post-structuralist, I don't subscribe to probably any particular philosophy. But the, the the question becomes, how do we how do we understand each other when it shouldn't work, um, and and what is that mechanism? I, I mean, one of the, I always tell my one of the biggest miracles is that we understand anything, because and what, but then to ask what that understanding means, what does it mean to understand something when language shouldn't work? There's no reason why language should work because, 
and maybe it never works entirely, but something happens. And what is that something? So are you trying to set up postmodernism as opposed to poststructuralism? Or at least different yeah, post, from? Well, poststructuralism and deconstruction as opposed to structuralism. Thinking not just of how meaning happens, but how meaning fails to happen. I think that's where we get into poststructuralism, deconstruction, as opposed to postmodern culture, which might be tied to that, but which is its own sort of cultural react. And I, I don't think we need to talk today about or maybe we do. Maybe someone will correct me and say that we do need to talk about the relationship of, you know, capitalism and alienation. <laughs> I, I don't know that that's where we're going. Or am I am I correct in thinking that's not where we're going? That we're talking about meaning and language and discourse. Yeah, I think so to a certain extent. But I think the way that's framed loads the question and predetermines the conclusion to say that it's about language. Um, and that's a big problem that I have with most of the postmodernists is they see understanding as entire as language bearing the whole weight of understanding. And I think there are very many other ways that humans come to understanding beyond language. Uh, and so if you're going to say, how does language lead to meaning and understanding? Well, yeah, there's, that's, it's fraught with difficulties, um, and it's pretty easy to predetermine your outcome from that, from that position. But if you give, open up the possibility that human knowledge and understanding, uh, their accessibility to the world is possible in ways beyond language, then you have a whole lot more going on. Um. So, no, I'm, I'm interested because I, I remember having this debate. I, I used to be on the other side of this debate. When I was um, in my master's program at BYU, I took a, a class from Claudia Harris. She's a, uh, she's a, a professor of theater. I mean, she, she does theater, or she does drama, not theater. She does drama in the English department. So uh, we were doing dramatic texts from various people. And she had us read some theoretical stuff, and um, it was talking about a language is prior to thought. And I was like, no, of, of course not. There's thought, you put it into language, and then you... And I was very adamant about that. And I've come to, um, I've come to the point where I, I, I can't... And, and I, I'm interested in opening the debate again because I, I, I want to go back there. I think it's worth going back to the things we think we've decided and thinking about them again. But I got to a point where I, was, I, I just realized I couldn't personally think of a way to have a thought that was not uh, based in my understanding of the world that comes from language. Um, and uh, that, that my language conditioned the way I think about the world to the, to the extent that that's where what my thoughts are so that 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 idea I, I guess I've gotten to the point where I don't think of language as prior to thought but I think of it as contemporaneous with thought that thought and is uh, linguistic in its nature and this is this is very Lacanian right the idea that our even our unconscious is structured like a language and that 
you know, it, I, I, I use, well, actually, I'm going to stop for a minute, and then I'll talk about examples later if, uh, so if you, you want me to. But Can I respond? But yeah, uh, it, yeah I'm, I'm interested in what kind of understanding we would have of the world that, um, that would not be conditioned by language and that, that you could tell me about because you're going to have to tell me tell us now in language. Right. Right about that. Yeah. So I think this debate is shaped to a large extent or one of the ways to get into the debate is the Noam Chomsky idea of universal grammar. And that's the idea that humans are born with this universal grammar and all languages across the world have these fundamental elements to them. So much to the extent that, I don't think Chomsky himself has said this, but a number of his followers have, that there is a organ in the brain that processes language, right? That's, that's capable of doing that. And I think that's a kind of an underlying assumption of a lot of these authors, that language is, is that fundamental part of, of, of humans. And that philosophy, that theory has, has collapsed. Daniel Everett has done an enormous amount of work with this group in uh, the Brazilian rainforest that demonstrates quite conclusively that there isn't a universal grammar. And physiologists who are looking at the human brain and whatnot are, are saying, yeah, it's just not there. How did they uh, come to that conclusion that there wasn't a universal grammar based on the people in the rainforest? Because they don't have it at all. All sorts of things that are supposed to be the fundamental component of that universal grammar does not exist. But they have some kind of language? They do have language, but they don't have that, that universal component. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now, interested you can, in what those this, are. This is, this is, you, can, you can read it. It's a fascinating story. Um, but now, Tom who, Wolf, who is it again? Dan, Dan Everett. Dan Everett. Can you, and, I'm not going to remember that. Somebody write that. Because I want to read it. Here's the way to get into that. Tom Wolfe's last book, Kingdom of Speech, is about this whole debate um, and goes through and looks at the different groups and what they're saying and ultimately concludes and says where the conventional wisdom is now is that language is simply an artifact that we picked up, a tool along the way. And we've used it, and we use it quite extensively but it's just an artifact. It's not an inherent fundamental component to humans. And that there are, so the meaning that we give to words is deeper than the words. That is, so this idea of postmodernism that you know, the, the weight of the word carries everything is, is not a new idea. Um, and one of the best responses of an old philosopher to this was St. Augustine. His son asked him this question, all right? How do we know what the words mean? They're so ambiguous and amorphic and vague. And how does the person that you're talking to actually understand what you're saying? And Augustine's response was, well, say that you have a foreigner um, with you and he hears the word quickly and he asks you, what does quickly mean? And so you get up and you take three quick steps, you know, moving your arms, and you say, that's quickly. And most of the time, they're going to get that. 
They're not going to think it's moving your arms. They're not going to think it's three steps. They're going to get what quickly is. And this is what the physiologists and the others are telling us, that that brain is this incredible capacity to discover true meaning. Despite the vagueness of words, the brain is capable of bridging that. And that's the problem with the postmodernists, most of the postmodernists that I see and, and think about going all the way back to Kant, is that the brain is really not, it's just a black box to them, and it doesn't fit into their calculations. But once you begin to realize that speech is an artifact, and that the brain is capable of this incredible processing power to cut through all of that ambiguity and find out what it is, where does postmodernism stand? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting when you talked about not having a universal grammar. The first thing that came to mind, I thought you were going to say that that was um, an argument against pers against postmodernism that we all have a universal grammar, and that that sort of conditions the way we respond to things. And so the first thing I thought was, well, of course we don't have universal. I'm taking uh, Hawaiian this semester. And it's so completely different from English, even in its categories, to where you can't talk about nouns and verbs. Oh, this is a noun, is it an adjective, it is an adjective. No, it's none of those. It's, you know, it's, you know, kikino, uh, or it's an meme, uh, or it's, you have to know completely different categories of words. So that a word um, is a state, it describes a state of being, and. And so it's not really an adjective and it's not a verb because some adjectives do that in our language and some verbs do that in our language, but they have a whole category for that. And so it's not like it's, it's laid out. It doesn't map nicely on English. In fact, uh, they've started teaching Hawaiian differently uh, because originally they would teach it in relation to English and say, here are the different English. And now they've come up with a different way of teaching it which which uses the metaphor of a squid which sound you're like what and and but that's better for teaching hawaiian than thinking about you know the language that you had before but so uh, I steve i don't but that really doesn't get to it because comparing english and hawaiian is like comparing humans and whales significantly different but they both fit in the category of mammal and that's what the universal language is saying, is that there's a category that all the languages fit into. Well, I, I mean, to only to the extent, and like I said, I thought at first that you were saying that that was a, an argument against, that universal grammar was an ar ar argument against sort of the, the post-structuralist argument. Because you were saying that, look, there's, there is a universal that underlies all this. And I said, like, no, there's not a universal that underlies it, that things are different. But I think to the there there might be a similarity to the extent that we can say oh well there's signifiers and signifieds, which Saussure Could you explain would that real quick what yeah. yeah which Saussure would say you know okay there's the the signifier which is um, primarily for Saussure and this is other people who have sort of uh, looked at this in different ways for Saussure this was uh, primarily a uh, vocal a uh, and a uh, sound uh, morpheme, right? Like there the material. Sound, yeah, there were sounds that related then to an idea, an mm -hmm. underlying idea, This, which was the 
designified. And then you've got uh, other people since have said, well, look, there, it, not everything's based on sound, right? There are primarily non-sound related ways of writing. But the idea that there's some kind of a, a symbol, whether it's spoken or written or a gesture, right? Because sign language doesn't isn't spoken or written. It's not related to sound or writing. Um, but then it relates to an idea. And when we can connect those two things and we have language, and then really all that all that Derrida said was that pff, that never really happens. You never get an idea hooked up completely with a, uh, a particular symbol. So, um, And it goes back to, and, and in that I always go to Bakhtin, right? Who says, look, language is always half someone else's. And he, t he looks at how basically what happens is for a word to mean something, it's got an entire history. It's got every other usage of that word. And then if every other time someone says chair that you know of, that contributes to your idea of what a chair is. But uh, Shane, on the other hand, would have had heard chair used in completely different situations. Now, they might have been some of the same situations, some different situations, but there's always a difference between the language that Shane knows and the mm. language that I know. And so there's understanding, but there's never complete understanding. And I, th I think that perhaps some of the, the post-structuralist, post-modernist, deconstructionists were much less... Um, dogmatic than some of their their after followers. I know um, uh, Derrida, for instance, would be much less dogmatic about understanding not happening than, say, even like Demon after him was very much interested in tearing things apart. Derrida was more about showing us where things didn't work and finding out what that means. What do we do now that that doesn't work? exactly the way that we thought it did. And I, I guess that's the kind of post-structuralist that I am, if I am a post-structuralist, is I want to look at the way things don't work. And then for, for Derrida, that was a sense of, I'm going to be very humble in the way I use language because I'm using language, and if you don't understand me, if Jackson doesn't understand what I'm saying, that's not necessarily Jackson's fault. Um, and we may never come to understanding entirely but we can at least see where the gaps are and come to an understanding of what we don't understand so what but is if, if, if i may you're just repeating old arguments and that aren't responding to the modern critique of postmodernism. you're still putting the weight on language and you're not dealing with the idea that we have been able to get inside the brain now and say the brain is able to bridge that ambiguity, not fully, not to the extent that is widely claimed, you know, to, by some people, but certainly at a much greater extent than the postmodernists give it, give it credit for. And those are old ideas. Philosophy and other people have rejected postmodernism, and yet there are so many disciplines that still continue to, to push it forward. Well, I, I have a, I have a, here's my pr trouble with the idea that philosophy rejects post-structuralism. Um, is that okay? Well, Derrida, deal, can Derrida's you deal got, with the argument that okay, I made? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I will, I will deal with that as, as part of this. Is that um, Derrida in the 
university in the eyes of its pupils um, talks about uh, the hard eye of an insect and he talks about the ways that there's a sense in which we need to be able to close our eyes in order to be introspective and that philosophy generally right has been focused on establishing rules of logic and operating within them and that Derrida's biggest thing is uh, not saying that that doesn't that that's not a valid system but saying that there's a there are things that we can't talk about without stepping outside of that for a minute and so language uh, re referring to the the idea of language um, it's like, okay the brain understands things bridges ambiguity but there are these grave differences in the way that we approach language and language is the only way we have of communicating. I don't know of another way of communicating ideas or of expressing what those ideas are. Um, I don't think that any, any postmodernist denies that there's a real world, right? That if I, if I try to put my hand through this uh, mic stand, it stops, right? Like it, this, something exists here, but what is it? Um, I have a, a, a uh, example that I use with my students, okay? I'm, I'm standing at a podium in the class while I do this, and I say, I'm in a podium, right? That's truth. Hancock is standing at a podium. I say, but what, what makes it a podium? Somebody else could walk in the room and say, that's good firewood. And I'd say, well, it's not firewood. You can't take my podium and claim it's firewood because I made it into a podium. And they'd be like, well, what are you wasting money or wasting wasting resources that I can make a good fire out of to cook with, right? I could be using that to cook, and you want to just stand behind it and talk to people. You could stand and talk to people without a podium, without taking my firewood and standing it there. So is it a podium or is it firewood? And um, and we might have different language words for that in completely different languages, right? And we might say, well, of, of course it's a podium. Like, you can't take my, my podium and make it into firewood because that's a waste of what I've, I've developed here. So are you it's, saying that truth and knowledge are relative, more subjective then? It depends on what you mean by truth. And I was saying this in my, my uh, email as well. I mean, I believe things happen. I believe in truth as things as they are, things as they have been, and things as they will be, as they really will be. I mean, the quote things is, are happening. The, the quote's a little bit different than that. Um, that, that it's... Knowledge. Knowledge of things. Of things. Past, as, present. Past, present. Yeah, as they really have, are, as they really have been, as they really will be. And, and I'm fine with that, that things are happening in the world. But I, I don't have a way of connecting with that thing that's really happening outside of my paradigm. And the paradigm is language. Or and that paradigm is intimately connected to language. I, I don't think that it's separable from language because that's the way that's the way that I learned that that thing was a podium was because at some point I called it a podium. And I might say to the person, look, there are much better ways to cook your food than taking my podium and breaking it up. And they might say, there are much better things to, 
to stand behind to, to speak to someone or stand on or, or maybe you don't need anything than to take my firewood. Um, and my expecting them to even go use something else to cook with assumes a complete paradigm that's, that's connected to my view of the world. It's what Althusser would say, you know, it's connected to my ideology in a very broad sense. For, for Althusser, ideology is, I become a subject in the world because the world speaks to me and I decide who I am in relationship to the way the world speaks to me. And I've got this whole range of things in front of me that condition the way I see the world. Condition the way that I see that piano over there. Oh, okay, let's hold. Let's okay, stop for a and second. now I'll let him talk because I've been talking. Because <laughs> you're moving into a second, another subject that's a good one, but I want to deal with this yeah. this part first. Um, so just like I think postmodernism loads the debate by putting the entire weight of understanding on language, so I think postmodernism is attacking a straw man. It's making the the people that it disagrees with something they aren't. And, and, and that goes to the part where we talked about universal grammar and your assumption was I was going to use this to attack uh, postmodernism because postmodernism is, as Leotard said, a deep skepticism about meta narratives, about universals in any form. Um, and that's really kind of taking on a very narrow definition of truth and understanding, which would come from Plato, which is that truth is uh, one and universal. But that's not the way you have to under you necessarily understand truth. It's not the way I understand truth. It's not the way a number of people understand truth. If you understand truth as plural, right? Truth has a function, and the function of truth is to correctly project how the world is. And to the extent that it correctly projects how the world is, it's true. Knowledge of present, past, and future. Um, by the way, it's kind of interesting side note. The Hebrew word for truth is composed of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the middle letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which kind of conveys that idea of past, present, and future. But if we take your example of the pulpit, right, it can be both a pulpit and firewood. That's true. Both of those are true. And it can be multiple other things as well. The question is, at the, there's, it's conveying a truth, right? And so the question would be for us as an audience, as, an audience, as a group of people, what do we want that to be at the moment? Do we want it to be a pulpit? Do we want it to be firewood? Do we want to make it into a birdhouse? All of those things are pluralistically true. And I don't think that, that most post-structuralists are going to disagree with you a whole lot. Right. So that moves us into this place where you were going. But, but, but what that does, what it does do is it gives a realm for truth that um, interfaces with reality in a way that's more more tangible than what postmodernism would agree with. Well, but see, I think you're I think you're really taking liberties with with the word truth as it's been traditionally used to say, okay, what is the truth about this thing? Well, now you're saying truth is what we call it. No. Right? No. And to say that it's correctly describing the situation 
is just to say it's describing the way that this situation functions for us culturally no. and ideologically. That's a postmodern view, but that's not what I'm saying. Because it's not, you say it's really a podium. It is really a podium? It's correct to call it a podium? It would be true to call it a podium. Why is it true to call it a podium? Be, well, because it is shaped in the manner and form that serves the function of a podium, that we have come to agree and understand socially as a podium. So how is that not a cultural understanding of what that thing is? I mean, somebody who's never encountered a podium has no idea of public speaking, right? right? That so, doesn't describe their reality at all. Okay, so let me explain. What Foucault would say, what, what postmodernists are going to say to a large extent is the way we see and understand the world is a result of socially constructed concepts, understandings, and... Yeah, absolutely. Language. And I don't disagree with that. I completely agree with that. And most other thoughtful people about these issues don't have a problem with that. The problem becomes in the next step that postmodernists take, and that is that that social construction is itself truth. It's not the objective reality of that thing that's there that we call a pulpit. It is together in our understanding and the way we think of these things, that is the truth. Now, I will say that there is, that can happen. Marxism, I've, I've seen this you know, happen in societies. The workers will say, we're workers and we are supposed to be exploited. And the managers will say, we're managers and we are supposed to exploit. Both of them referring to, to Marx as an accurate description of the world. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that makes it happen. So there are definitely truly social constructions that become self-fulfilling prophecies, but that doesn't make them objective realities. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is necessarily true. So, so right, right here, there's a table in front of us, and I'm wanting you to to object to describe the objective reality of that table in a way that is not culturally conditioned. Well, that's not the point. That's, I would agree with that, that the way we think of it is culturally constructed. I mean, a table becomes a very complicated object. Is a bedside table a table? Is a hallway table a table? Right? Our, our language is, is really vague and ambiguous on these sorts of things. I have no problem with that. But the problem I have with postmodernism is that it denies if we go back to Kant's language, that we cannot reach the pneuma, that the phenomena is in our head. We take things in, right? We see things, we hear things, and we try to make sense of it, but that can only take place within our heads, but we can't fully ever really truly grasp the reality. And so there's this, this unbridgeable gap between them. And Foucault and the others take that further and say, yes, it's in that phenomena that's socially constructed, not just within our own heads, but socially as we do this, we create what is true. And, I'm, and, and, and there I say no, that we can create self-fulfilling things, but we still can bridge, we can make the bridge to reality because our brains 
are able to interface with the world in ways that aren't just um, limited by language. So go back to the table. This is a table, but the piano bench, is that a table? If I put my cup on it, does it become a table? Right? It's real, but our language, if I use that as a table, if I sit down and I start eating off of that, and someone says, oh, that's a creative table, right? There's an objective reality there that is true. And the truth of it, our brains are able to grasp that because we're able to get beyond the limits of language. So I would say you were, you're, you're working within a very narrow range of what that could be. That could be... Oh, I can go, I, we can make it as extensive as you want. Yeah, but I mean, we, I but can I'm make showing, that lots of things that, that we aren't even thinking of right now. That's true. As soon as we think of it, right, we're mm -hmm. going to give it a new word for what that thing is. And where did we get those words? We got them from our social context. So language doesn't grow? No, we're, of course it grows. Because we hear from it. What? Can, what? From what? From hearing different words used in different contexts. Sometimes it, it happens that there's an accident. Have you ever had an experience of something that you couldn't, or experienced something that you couldn't put words to it? Yeah, of course I have. Of course I have. And that's not real? Did you have to have the language mediate that experience for you? But what is it? Tell me what it is now. It's that thing I can't understand. But you still experienced it. But you didn't. So this is how, what I don't understand, Steve. It sounds like you're saying that we need language to mediate the world. And I'm saying that there's plenty of things that we experience and we go through without actual words to mediate it. If I can jump in real quick, Joe, just to be clear, as far as I understand it, tell me if I'm wrong, but Dr. Hancock, your understanding of truth is grounded in language, and Dr. Smith, your understanding of truth is grounded in the function as well as in experience. If Go ahead. <laughs> Not exactly. See, this is this is hard because for me, I'm saying, hey, look, I can't, I can't. The words aren't there to to equate. Whatever I tell you is now going to ground that that thing that I'm talking about, and to me, that's that's the sense of the the post-structuralist debate. Is that truth? Sure, it's there. It's there. I'm going to run into this microphone stand. But see, to tell you that I'm going to run into this microphone stand, I had to assume this was a microphone stand. I had to assume what I meant by me and what it means to run into something. Right? I, all of that has to be there before I can express to you the idea that I'm going to run into this microphone stand. See, and here I go. And there, I just ran in. Actually, I ran into the microphone. I didn't even run into the microphone stand. There we go. Now I ran into the microphone stand. But did I run into the microphone stand? Only because I've decided it's a microphone stand, and I've decided what it means to run into it. I, I could be caressing the Buluyaga, which is a, a, an interesting, you know, thing for worshiping spongy stuff. I don't know. It's like I could, uh, and I'm running, you know, I don't know. Or I could, it could be thousands of other things. So when it could be any number of, uh, an unspecifiable number of things, yes, this is here, but I can only 
when I encounter it, yeah, you know, right now I'm feeling something and my, my neurons are feeling the, the coolness, right? But by the time I express that, by the time that I have, and, and here we might say, what's a thought, right? And this becomes, this becomes a difficulty. What is thought, right? Am I thinking something when I have, when my body just goes, oh. but of course, even when I say, oh, that means something relaxing, it's attached to things. What's thought and what is physical, physiological reaction? But in saying physiological reaction, I'm assuming a sort of scientific paradigm that says that that's what experience is, is the way, you know, this, this experience that tries to nail down what's happening in my hand in terms of the neurons firing, that even calls them neurons. See, I'm trying to think my way, way out of the language, and when I try to think my way out of the language, I just work my way into other discourse. So, so there's two problems with that. The first one is, you began with truth is this stand, physical reality, that there's a physical reality and the truth is the physical reality. That's not my understanding of truth. My understanding of truth is if it correctly portrays the world as it is. So it's the thought. Does the thought correctly portray the world as it is? And when you got to thought, you were lost. What is thought? I you know, I can't explain that. I don't know what that is. But that's where I find truth. Truth is is our conception of the world. Is it a proper, correct conception of the world? To call this a, a stand would be a proper conception. It's standing up, right, holding the microphone in place. If we want to worship it, some people might see it as something else. And that could be very much a truth for them. Is that a correct understanding of the world? Well, that's an interesting question to ask, and it is a question that can be asked. So can we ask you a question? Does postmodernism help or hurt society, in your opinion? Well, that's a bigger question. That's a, that's a completely different question. Mm. I, 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 I don't see it as necessarily doing either. Well, actually, before we move on, do either of you have any last, like, statements to say about the idea of truth? It's a cor it's the pr correct um, portrayal of the world as it is. And that can capture both a physical reality and it can capture value, such as justice, it can capture things like goodness and kindness, um, decency and nobility, right? A correct portrayal of, of, of something. Yeah, whereas I see, I, I, that word correct is difficult for me because somebody has to decide it's correct, right? Now that could be someone with every reason to believe that that's correct, and maybe it's someone we, we trust to make that uh, judgment of correctness and maybe it's someone ideally it's uh, God who has a different perspective I don't understand his perspective I don't know how discourse looks 
when you understand every word that's ever been used in every context that's ever been used. I don't know what the world looks like then because I'm, I'm not there and I will never be there, at least in this life. Perhaps one day I will be there when they give me my Urim and Thummim and I can look in my ear and, and, and have everything present before me. I don't know what that's going to be like. That's going to be a trip. But, uh, so, so, but let's use that as a bridge into your question. Okay. Yeah. Um, is postmodernism good or bad for society? Well, to the extent that Steve is hesitant to use the word correct and label anything correct or bad, postmodernism is a big problem because that leads to relativism and nihilism, that we can't say that this is a correct belief. We can't say that this is a proper understanding of the world. We have to treat everybody's perceptions and ways of seeing things to a certain extent as certain extent as as equal. And that creates a real problem to the extent that we want doctors and dentists and airline pilots to be able to say this is the correct way and that's the wrong way. We want and and that's not just in some physical reality, but it also goes to things like kindness and justice. Yeah, where um you know this is it a good thing, is it a bad thing? I think in some ways it can be used terribly. Right? Um the the famous example of this is Paul Demon, who, um, you know, he was a he was one of the found he was sort of after Derrida he was the big guy who brought deconstruction to America and you know come to find out he had done a lot of positive wartime journalism for the Nazis you know it, you can take this and you can say hey we're going to bend reality to be what we want it to be. Um, Derrida spent most of his late career thinking about ethics and thinking about um, he, he struggled really with the ideas of uh, Emmanuel Levinas at, uh, and the idea of encountering the other having responsibility for the other um, and what that responsibility would look like right um, and this is uh, one of the other things that I talk about a lot with my students is that there is, you know, we talk about materialism, and to me, language is a materialist thing. So I don't have any problem with the idea of language as a tool. That language is a thing, and we say things hoping for a particular reaction, and hope if we're good at it, we get the right reaction out of the world. Um, but that there are things that are uh, right and wrong, that there are things that are ethically good or ethically bad. Is there um, something to that? Yes, there is. And that, that we can't describe materially why it would be better for me to not pick up, not that I'm frustrated with him or anything, but that I would not, not pick up what, I'm looking for something that the I guitar. Pick up the guitar <laughs> and and smack it into Brother Smith. If if there's no if I have no responsibility for Brother Smith, then it doesn't matter. It'd be an interesting pattern in the world to see. Oh look, someone just smacked. Although interesting, interesting to who? 
right? And so, um, as Shane said, you know, if you've ever, like something that makes you question your entire existence, actually, uh, you, you don't have to get to postmodernism to question your entire existence. Descartes did that a long time ago, right? Um, it's not about existence, it's about what does existence mean? And uh, I think the real work being done now is with the ethical philosophers who are trying to decide what does it mean to have ethical responsibility for someone, even, even in the face of not being able to, to nail, like, let's, let's assume that we really never can completely connect with reality. Can we still have re ethical responsibility for the other? And, um, and in that way, I think that, that postmodernism can, like I said, I think it can be a terrible thing. You can just use it to say, well, then I have no responsibility. Great, thanks. Or you can use it to say, let me look at the ways that I'm trying to have re ethical responsibility, and I may think that I'm doing the right thing. But if I follow those things through and see where they don't make as much sense as I thought they did, then I can have a greater understanding of my ethical responsibility for the other, right? So that I don't come in and say, well, the other needs this or that, or I should react this way in, in relation to the other based on my cultural paradigm, right? That in some ways I can respect them as an, an other human being. And that in that way, it can be a good thing. So I think it can be a good thing and it can be a terrible thing, right? So you can use it to, I, I see post-structuralism as a tool that can be used in, in many different ways. So postmodernism has created a problem that doesn't need to be, right? To say, okay, we're postmodern, and so we can't say that there's universals, but we maybe have an ethical responsibility towards the other. <laughs> just skip that whole stuff and just say, there is another, and we have ethical responsibilities to them, and what are those ethical responsibilities, right? It's created a whole series of problems that aren't necessary and which oftentimes lead people off to this relativistic perspective, almost a solipsistic perspective or a Nietzschean perspective of it's all about self and, or it's all about power. Uh, it's nice to see that there are postmodernists thinking about the ethical component to that, but <laughs> that's already there within our human experiences. There's another thing along these lines of, of the benefit of, of a problem of postmodernism in the sense of truth, and that is that if you believe in truth, then you are very concerned about being wrong, right? This is my perception of the world. Is my perception inaccurate? Does it accurately portray the world? So you're you're very concerned that you are probably wrong to some extent. And so you continue to question and investigate and explore and try to find the ways to make your understanding of the world better. It was Daniel Borstein who said, the greatest threat to discovery is not ignorance, it's the illusion of knowledge. And the problem I have with, one of the problems I have with postmodernism is it creates this illusion of knowledge. And it's very seductive because, right, the ones who learn about it are like, hey, I know something about the world that nobody else knows. I see through the mirror and the, 
the ambiguity and vagueness of logic and see how power is manipulated through logic and things like that. And most people, nobody's really going to deny that language has the power to do that, but they're going to deny that, that the weight that it puts on language and they're going to deny that postmodernism of going all the way to the point of its relative, that we can't decide what's correct and right. And so I find the real dogmatist in the world today are the postmodernists who claim there's no such thing as truth. And that's a real problem. Where's, I mean, there's a lot. You just said a lot of things. And so I'm trying to decide <laughs> where to start uh, addressing that. Because um, I, don't, I don't think that um, most people would say that we can't, for instance, make truth claims, right? Is I could say there is no microphone stand here. And that's a truth claim. And, uh, and Derrida spends a lot of time talking about truth claims. And, you know, that's a lie. I intend to deceive people. And how can we, how can we deal with, with things like that? When, in fact, Nietzsche would say, if I say there's a microphone stand here, and I see, I'm, I'm not going to go with Nietzsche on this. Nietzsche would say, if I say there's a microphone stand here, I'm lying. He would say, because I'm implying that this is a microphone stand. And that takes into account all of my cultural paradigm. And I'm situating this within my cultural paradigm. And therefore, I'm lying to you. Because I'm telling you this is what this must be. As opposed to leaving it open. And I don't think that that's just. Because we have to, I, we have to operate. We say the world language doesn't work the way we thought it did. Let's operate anyway. We have to go forward as if, as if language operates, because otherwise we're paralyzed. We can't be paralyzed. I don't think anyone wants us to be. Can um, any, sorry, just to jump in. Can anything be more correct than something else? Yes. But, okay, um, only in certain senses. Okay. Um, I think that the difficulty here, and, and we weren't going to bring up God, but I'm going to bring him up anyway, is that once we give up the idea that there can be a perspective that's outside of this world, that can thus give us correctness, I think we lose, right? Because now, if you tell me this is uh, an item of worship, number one, it could be an item of worship even if there is nothing worshipful about it. But if you say this is my God, right? we have to assume a particular way of deciding whether that's a god. We have to assume that we're going to be able to come to that conclusion, right? Um, if, 
it, it's pretty easy with the, with the microphone stand being a god because, I don't know, maybe the god just isn't doing what you want it to do, right? We say, okay, we're, we're going to play, we're gonna play uh, Elijah here, and we're going to say, okay, let's, let's start the piano on fire, and it won't. But now we can say, it just doesn't want to. My God doesn't give in to your little test. This is my God. But when we think about certain things like, what does it mean? I mean, things that are really important, right? Um, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? Uh, is it related to biology, right? And what is our relationship to that biology? Right, because most of the people who are, are interested in sexuality and don't deny that we have different biological bodies, right? They just say, well, the way we feel about those bodies is conditioned by social context. Uh, and that just because I have particular parts of my body doesn't mean that I have to think of myself as this or that, right? Now, I could say that's wrong. I know that that's wrong. And I know that being a man is different from being a woman and that we have particular responsibilities that go with that. We, why? Because, you know, because God told me. And I have that relationship with God and I can trust that. But if we take that out, then you can say, well, no, 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 you're a man and that means something and you're a woman and that means something and we're just going to go with that because why? Why go with it? Is there a particular reason to go with it? We could have that debate, but where do we get the authority to say that this is what this means or that is what that means? Okay, so the question was, can we say some things are more correct, more correct, correct than, than others? And to answer that question, you have to bring God into the equation. I really think that to, to, yeah. Okay. I think that we do. Okay. And then and a lot of things, I even, <laughs> even a lot of things, I don't even think God would answer that something's more correct than something else. Is that a chair? Sure, it's a chair. Um, okay. okay. Is, it, is it a collection of atoms? It's also a collection of atoms. Is it also, right, there are lots of things it, it is. Sure, and by my conception of truth as pluralism, all of those things could be true. But to say that, we can't say, if and we by, think of truth, go can, ahead. Can I just insert one thing? I don't think that you would, could have even talked about that without, without post-structuralism. The idea of oh, pluralist, yes pluralist truth, that that, that that chair could also be... Sure, Aristotle's talking about that. A, a hair ionizer because we could rub our head on it and make static electricity. Okay, okay, so new modern conceptions, no, Aristotle wouldn't talk about that, but he would say that uh, truth is pluralistic. Um, there are multiple ways of trying to see and understand and describe the same thing, and all of them could be accurate. Um, but yes, we can say that there some things are more correct than others um, in this world. If we think of truth as does it correctly portray the world as it is, right? And, you know, the fact that humans have survived for as long as we have in a harsh environment 
with so very little protective abilities innately in us, right? Thin skin, we get cold, um, we don't have claws or fangs and other, you know, indefensible in many ways. The ability to interact with the world in a survival mode and not just to survive and not just to thrive, but to flourish takes correct ideas. And we can say this idea is more correct than this idea because this idea helps us flourish, right? That's a very simple way to say one thing is more correct than the other. If you want to pull God into it, then you could say, why would God put man on earth with this separation between the phenomenon and the pneuma and not be able to interface with the two of them? What's the pneuma? The pneuma. The mm -hmm. pneuma would be the physical world. Okay. The phenomena would be the way we understand and try to make sense of that in our head, but it can never really bridge that, right? If, if you want to bring God in, why would God do that? But you don't even have to bring God into it because the fact is humans, despite all of our weaknesses and our problems, have learned to flourish in this world, the reality of the world, because we're able to say that's a correct idea and that's a bad idea. Or See, what were you thinking when you decided to light your pants on fire? <laughs> Right? Shame. Yeah, well, here's, here's <laughs> my that. problem with that, though, is now truth is merely what makes us, you say, makes us flourish. And that, that decides, we have to I didn't decide say, I, Wait, 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 let me be clear. I didn't say it's merely that, but I'm saying it's useful in that way. One of the uses of it is in that way. So what if I say, okay, fine. Um, that was great, but you know what? There's no need. I mean, we've got comforts, we're doing fine. I tend to be uh, attracted to guitars. So I'm a guitarosexual. Um, nothing wrong with that. It satisfies me. It's not hurting anybody. Nothing wrong with that. Um, why should, you know, and then... Wait, so you're assuming I'm going to condemn that? Do you think it's wrong for me to be a guitarosexual? I don't think I have to have an opinion on that. Either I think way. it would be wrong for me to be a guitarosexual. The, I think that is wrong. See, the, 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 the post-structuralist is the, the more conservative of the two. Well, wait a second. But at the beginning, you were saying you're not totally in those lines. And I, and I don't think that post-structuralism would necessarily let you go there. You're, you're adding, there's another component yeah, well, to you that you're using to make that evaluation. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's because of the fact that I... I, under, I but I, I think a better evaluation would, of this, I mean, surely we could get into the debate about a guitar section... What did you, whatever. A guitarosexual. Except we Please get, get it right. Debate. Please get it right because it's <laughs> offensive to me when you don't. I think we can save that debate for another day. Let's try a different one. George Washington, in his farewell address, asked the question or said Some people think that a nation at the scale of this one is not possible. Let experience prove it. Right? And so that's what truth is about. The founding fathers 
had this conception of the world and put together this structure of a government. And a lot of people were critical of it and said it won't work, it's gonna fall apart. And Washington's response was, we'll see. And that's what we can use to, to evaluate things. Well, but see, this, uh, this assumes what the success of this experiment will be, right? So you, you look at, you, look at you, you would have a lot of people who would say, so we're seeing whether we can subject Native Americans to our new system of government. I'm not saying that's how I feel about it necessarily, right? Uh, in fact, I think that I was just talking to my scouts today because our citizenship in the nation person had to like reschedule. And we were talking about the idea that there hasn't ever been a nation that was founded on an idea before America. There were, there were lots of different ways of founding governments, but it was never, I mean, we can go back to Greece maybe, or we could talk about, but this idea that we're gonna take an idea and we're gonna make that the central of a government, the center of a government, and that that was new and that was interesting, and I think that that's a great thing. Um, and then we say, okay, let's see if it works. And I think it's worked to this point. Although empirical evidence is always tricky because there can always be more empirical evidence, right? I'm, I'm, I'm always worried right now. Not, see, now we're tra traveling into your domain, but I'm, I'm really worried about our ability to sustain public dialogue and, and a pluralistic view of politics that um, we were just reading uh, John F. Kennedy's uh, inaugural address, right? Very famous speech. And he starts with the idea, this is not about party, right? It's about, now, of course, he could have been saying that to make it look like everyone loved him when not everyone did, which politicians, politicians do are quite often. that way. Right? That's, that's sure. the first thing you do when you get elected to a position is make it not seem partisan. Um, but I think there's a point that we've gotten to where, where that people don't even pretend anymore. Right, it's like um, Trump did not get up and say this isn't about parties. And, you know, he got up and said this is a victory for us. Uh, it it seems I think public mm -hmm. discourse is, has changed that way. So all all to go back to has have we succeeded? Well, with infinite time stretching in front of us, maybe we have and maybe we haven't. Um, so is but, success objective? Yeah, that's the question. Can we ever get to success? Or does the person who says, well, I think this nation, and you, there are these people exist all over the place. They say this, this nation is a terrible place, right? It's, it's all we do is assume that we're right. Well, to the extent that tr truth can be plural, there are multiple definitions of success. Some would be better than others. Many could be equivalent with each other uh, in which we could use to evaluate that idea right has the nation been successful well it survived for 200 years in pretty much the same form that it was originally conceived that would be one definition of success uh, at the same time it hasn't lived up to its ideals in its treatment of Native Americans African Americans minorities um, um, 
in different ways, and in that regard, it hasn't been a success. So if we go back to the definition of truth that I've been arguing for, it correctly portrays the way the world is, that depends to a certain extent on the definition of the word is. Didn't Bill Clinton say that? Yeah. <laughs> you caught the reference. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, is is yeah. one of the most complicated words in the English language. Mm. Well, I think is is the, cent the center of the critique of metaphysics of presence. What does that even mean? Metaphysics uh, of presence. The metaphysics yeah, of presence. The true. idea <laughs> that anything is ever uh, the same. That Number one, language. And number two, anything is ever the same for, like, two minutes together or two instants together that in some way we can say this is true well is it true now i mean now i mean now i mean now right but again, time is always is but again that's an attack on a straw man right or at least a very narrow idea of truth that would go back to plato as one and universal which isn't f widely agreed on and i certainly don't accept that okay. Well, but that, that's what originally Derrida and others like him were, were very explicit in that they were critiquing platonic ideals. Yeah. Right. Number one. Um, but I don't think we would be talking this way without them. I think we would, be, we would be talking about truth differently without the post-structuralists. And to the extent that, to that, that's why I say to some extent that these things are good things. Uh, to some extent, they can be bad things. Um, but I really think, I really do think, uh, I have a hard time without referring to the idea of something outside of us coming back to these cultural definitions being better or worse than each other. Because it could be good that I like to beat well, up, like, people like with curly hair you know so i like jackson you're out of there because that's that's my like boom that's a cultural idea and it's maybe you know if we just don't <laughs> what's that said bring it on yeah i mean, I, I i have a real problem with that's that that's the because... next podcast is us <laughs> battling it yeah you can sell tickets to that's that a good one. One. <laughs> i'll buy you money. well you want to be the first I... person to beat jackson up i have myself so yeah well to be fair i won well, We'll he beat you up and you won. That, that's but good. you're the one who has the scar. Yeah, that's okay. true. So I was who successful won? in that one. Who won? Who won? Who did win? What does it but, mean to win in this situation? But I, I, again, I think the way that you framed the question is a bit loaded, um, as if that we're going to say that one culture is right and the other culture is wrong. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, true. That's not necessarily uh, required. You the word. Yeah. You got me. <laughs> It, but that's not necessarily required, right? If you accept truth the way I've been trying to conceive of it, there's multiple ways that you could have good, correct, decent, noble, flourishing cultures that are fundamentally different from them. This question of relativism, you know, I mean, is not new. You can go back to Cyrus the Great of the Byzantine Empire, Persian Empire, right? He's the one who let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. Um, he pulled together a bunch of different cultures and he experts from the cultures and he asked them one question how do you treat your dead oh some burn them and some bury them and some eat them and some you know do different sorts of things and he's like proves it there's no truth there's no moral right way to do things because everybody treats their dead differently 
But the way the response to that is, well, maybe they all treat their dead differently, but they're all treating their dead respectfully. That's how they understand respect. And so that goes to this deeper question of, is there a moral sense? And a lot of people have argued that there is a moral sense. The expression of it varies. And so to the extent that cultures are consistent with that moral sense, but expressing it differently, they may flourish. And that's one of the things, that's the, one, the intuition, one of the ways of knowing. I give you a list of a bunch of different ways of knowing without words, but oftentimes there's this intuition that we have that is a moral sense that does, is shaped by words, but not necessarily. It transcends those words. And that's what I think we can do. I think that we can transcend language when we're careful. Guys, we've got to wrap this up. So I guess we'll just leave a little bit of time for you guys to kind of sum up what postmodernism is and like what it has able to do for you know, benefits, drawbacks, basically just summing up. So I'll let you respond to that and then close. Let me go kind of close. Sure. I All right, so... Uh, the question I hoped you'd ask, but and I'm going to use this in my closing statement, and, and <laughs> Good. I'm going to uh, make a critique of the humanities as an outsider, which isn't totally fair, but Steve gets to go last so he can We could have it. episode two if you guys want. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that, you know, the humanities are losing people left and right. They, um, you know, and where the, they're going to places like business, which... I don't want to demean business, but to really, I think undergraduates sh should be in the humanities if the humanities did their original mission. And, you know, the humanities are attractive to a group of people to a certain extent because they like to read and they're interested in ideas, but also because it gives them the sense of, of we know something you guys don't, a sense of superiority. Right? Oh, we're not we're not attracted to money, and we're not we're not you know becoming crass and materialistic like everybody else. We know the truth, and the truth is that you're being manipulated by all of these right di discourses and and things like that. Um, and I think for most people, they go into that and they hear that, and it doesn't fit their intuition. And what are they getting out of this? What's the benefit? What's the value to it? I think humanities would attract a whole lot more people and would be much more beneficial if it returned to its fundamental purpose, which is to help understand what it is about humans and especially what it is that makes us noble and great and kind and socially compatible with each other, just. I think that the human mind can break down culture and convention and historicism if it's allowed to explore those deep fundamental questions like what does it mean to be just what does it mean to be good what does it mean to be benevolent the to get to those questions you have to think you have to compare cultures and you have to think broadly and you have to think widely and it touches something deep within us and it makes us better people and the world needs that. Postmodernism has pushed the humanities 
away from those things and we're losing something vital and fundamental. You talk about the decline of discourse. I think the decline of discourse begins in the failure of the humanities to live up to their purpose. So, uh, no, I, I can respond to that uh, in my closing statement, which is I'll leave it to my students to decide whether uh, we're able to do those things while still discussing sort of discourse studies, while discussing the way language does or doesn't work. Uh, I teach English and it happens, you know, I tell my students, what do we have? We've got black marks on a page. And we have to understand what those things can do and what they can't do. Um, I think that if we're, the, the most important thing to do is to be honest about the way language works or doesn't work. Uh, what makes us human? Lots of things, among which are that we can be kind and we can be noble and we can be good. Sometimes we can be real sons of pumpkins. Uh, sometimes we can be terrible people. Um, and I think that understanding, properly understanding the way language works uh, can be part, not all, but certainly all, I, I don't discount the work of any other discipline. Um, but I think understanding the way language works, the way that we write the things we write, um, understanding the way our cultures work, and the way we express those values in the literature that we write can help us to be the kind of people that don't become belligerent to each other. That uh, now, like I said, uh, and I said this before, can can post-structuralism be used? Uh, and usually when I see this happen, it's always in a, a crude and um, very unthoughtful sense. Can it be used to incite violence and incite dis discord? Yes, it can be. Uh, a proper understanding of the way language works, though, can't not think about those ideas, can't not walk up to those ideas even if more people take my classes if I don't discuss them because it's just the way language works and that's what we're working with in English classes is like we've got language and so I would say that uh, yeah you know things you can you can use anything in a poor and and unsophisticated way and use it to beat people over the head with but I think that properly understood, they can bring us to a correct understanding of, yeah, see, I used your word. You didn't say it yet. Of, uh, of the ways that language are related. I said correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> correct, that language. Not, uh, not the, the T word. Though. No, I didn't get to the T word. <laughs> of the correct understanding, the way that language structures the way we think about it. 
I'm going to stop there. Well, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in and letting us pick your brain about it and being able to debate. So thanks for letting us do that. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for tuning in. This was the Zeno Podcast. You can stay updated by following our Facebook and Instagram pages at Zeno Podcast. This podcast was brought to you by BYU Hawaii's Reading Writing Center. Thanks for learning by listening. Ding.